the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Thanks so much for joining us once again for a brand new episode of Sake On Air the world's number one podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's most celebrated and iconic fermented drinks and distilled spirits of sake and shochu. Sake on Air is made possible with the incredible support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. And due to, or in some respects thanks to, the tumultuous year that was 2020, Last year, we also had the incredible honor of being able to further support the efforts of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association by delivering the industry's very first Sake Future Summit. We've since gone ahead and spliced up that nearly 30 hours of dialogue and nearly as many programs into individual videos to help make the topics, speakers, and conversations easier to find and enjoy. Viewing these on the official Sake on Air YouTube channel is arguably the best way to take in a lot of these discussions. However, that being said, a lot of the great ideas and insight actually translate to an audio-only format quite well. That's why this week we've decided to weave together segments from the various different sessions into a podcast. It is worth noting, however, that a little more than half of the programming for the Sake Future Summit was actually comprised of interviews, tours, presentations, and discussions conducted with individuals that are entrenched in the Japanese side of the industry, and as a result, were also conducted in Japanese. On YouTube, all of those discussions have been translated, subtitled, and made available and accessible. We highly recommend checking that out as well. It's material that we feel uniquely very privileged to have been able to organize and deliver and it offers really great insight uh, into the topics and conversations that are really permeating the Japanese sake and shochu industries. With the Sake Future Summit, we recognize that we did indeed try to thread the needle just a little bit by hosting both a, a mixture of rather industry-centric discussion alongside a good deal of more you know, light-hearted entertainment, uh, focusing more on the simple enjoyment of sake and shochu. Our thought was that the people, places, processes, and the activities surrounding these amazing drinks, that they're just inherently interesting. Our hope then is that whether you're just getting to know what sake and shochu have to offer and what they're all about, or if you've long been committed to these koji-born beverages, well, we hope that you'll agree. So with that, let's go ahead and get into the show. For this first session, we'll be listening in on a segment titled Sake Over Wine, the Taiwanese Cuisine Experiment. Here, Mr. Wolfgang Engel, who is the president and CEO of the internationally renowned glassmaker here in Japan, Riedel, teamed up with Michael Oh, the recently minted sake samurai and the chef and owner of Hanabi Izakaya and president of Holway Imports in Taiwan where together they systematically got to the bottom of one very simple but important question. When it comes to enhancing the flavor experience of Taiwanese cuisine, how often, and in what circumstances, does sake outperform wine? The duo put together a brilliant and rather mouth-watering presentation, outlining their processes, the food, sake, and wine selections, and their interpretation of their results 
I highly recommend checking out the session over on YouTube in its entirety in order to get the full story and context. Here in this segment, the two discuss the instances where certain types of wine and sake proved to be the best option, with sake clearly coming out on top. So here we go. Um, I will start with the wines and then um, sake, um, uh, Michael will talk about the sake. Uh, so we have the first wine. Uh, one out of 60 dishes was best matched with Pinot Noir. With the Pinot Noir, uh, the red fruit flavor of, of this Pinot Noir from, from Chile was really good, really going really well with the frozen tofu and the thick chili hot paste. So this is a Pinot Noir. Um, this the fruit. It was, was, was really number one, but it was the only um, uh, Pinot Noir and was the only red wine. So uh, this was the biggest shock for me personally, uh, because going to Taiwan and uh, tasting beef and stir fried and with fat and, and, and lots of, lots of uh, flavor intensity, uh, I, I was uh, hoping or was, was expecting uh, the red wines doing a lot, uh, a lot better, but, but unfortunately this was the biggest surprise for me that the red wines in general as a category was very hard to beat sake. Very, very hard to beat sake. Uh, the one that, that did stand up, the only wine that, st that stood up to, uh, to, to, to the sakes was the Riesling. Uh, and not the Australian Riesling. The Australian Riesling on the first day was far too sharp. It, it, it was very dry, it was a drier style. And uh, the acidity was just too sharp and too overpowering for, for, for most dishes, which is very delicate Taiwanese dishes. Uh, but once we choose the, the Mosul, uh, which has um, uh, a higher residual sugar, so it balanced beautifully uh, the acidity of the wine itself as a beverage, and also it has a lower alcohol. And those two, those two uh, uh, components, I thought, was extremely, uh, as, a, as a finding for us, really, really in, in, uh, uh, enlightening, uh, that lower alcohol and balanced acidity in the wine uh, to, was, was really a, a, great, a great match with, uh, with seven out of the 60 dishes. Um, so there have, you have different... Uh, Michael, is there anything you want to add to those? Yeah, the Mosul Could is actually very surprising for me. Uh, I, I realized that the sweetness from the wine and also acidity, if they balance it, actually go very well with uh, Taiwan food here. And uh, that's the most uh, surprisingly. And also the red wine actually uh, do very poorly, which is I also very surprised as well. I saw this. There's kind of some of the meat dish will go pairing with uh, quite well with the red wine, but uh, it didn't. So, but of course we have the strong components of the sake. So yeah. <laughs> and this is the uh, Jumai, Michael. Yes, yes, and this is actually that uh, Jumai Kimoto. Uh, which have the very uh, indicate on the acidity and also umami and some of the complexity at the end of the sake and actually one eight out of 60 dishes and I find out it's quite interesting that uh, this kind of style with the lactic acid very uh, strong not strong very obvious lactic acid actually can go with something extreme Taiwan food like 
the deep fried things and also some stir fry with the garlic and even something really spicy. Uh, they use a lot of chili dish. Actually, it would go well with that uh, sweet and also acidity, lactic acidity. Maybe this is, let me remind something uh, like what happened with Mosul. You know, we got the sweetness and also balanced acidity and also happening in, in this sake here. So I think if we have something like uh, high acidity and also umami as well, maybe we can go with something spicy food, uh, something uh, more uh, spice from the garlic, ginger, and also uh, deep fried thing, I think will go very well. And for the claim, the shellfish, uh, of course, will go well on the uh, sake because of the uh, uh, succinic acid. Also, the kuensan, they, they pair very well uh, from the food and also sake as well. And the next one, we will go on the big winner. Um, yes, this so event. Yes. The, yes. This was this was for me a big shock. I only saw the data and I thought this could could not be possible. But Michael, yeah, please. That's, please. that's true. Uh, I also saw this one probably will do like maybe a thirty percent of this will go well, not like thirty five. It's kind of crazy because. Uh, most of the uh, market that we have in Taiwan, the Junmai Ginjo or Junmai Dai Ginjo, tend to go a little bit sweet. But at the first, uh, very beginning, I was kind of scared that is that sake going to be too sweet for the food when they are pairing? But after all the, uh, the fly that we have actually did very, uh, very well, especially with something with the uh, meat sauce, meaty juice, and also with something... Uh, marinate as well and goes through very well and then I start wondering how come this dish go very well with the Junmai Daikinjo with this kind of style and the result is like uh, back to the standard cooking method that we have in Taiwan and most of them what are they from when we are thinking about that point it's like <clears throat> the first thing is that we use a lot of stock and many from the pork. So the food store that we have, we win a lot. The soup base all from the pork bone itself. Mm. So we have a, a good stock from the beginning. And then the second priority that uh, for the Taiwan food style is like sweet. So if the food store cannot afford, I mean, because the food store that we go to buy sometimes can go very cheap, like a, uh, maybe I get a soup and one dish and with bowl of rice, maybe I only spend maybe 200 Japanese yen to 300 Japanese yen. Of course, they cannot afford yet to 200. It's very cheap. So it's very surprising that we can use this price to buy our meal. But of course, they cannot, they cannot afford uh, to, uh, to do a lot of good stuff. Maybe some sugar is adding into our ingredient. And also stir fry, adding sugar is kind of the, the old time that we add sugar in to make the food more tasty. But now, of course, because the healthy part, they change to from the start from the natural ingredient. But still, adding sugar to dish is uh, quite normally in, happen in Taiwan. But not that sweet, but a little bit of sweetness. And also in Taiwan way of cooking with uh, marinade, fermentation food as the one of the ingredient that will uh, involve to one of the dish 
actually is a, a key point. So I start wondering that, okay, we have the stock of the umami and also sugar, sweetness a little bit, and also marinade fermentation food with all different layer of the food. Yeah, it actually will go well with something a little bit sweet and especially with the umami sake. And I realized, yes, that's why in Taiwan market, uh, not because only the Jumai Daiginjo, Daiginjo or Jumai Ginjo is the high class rank of the sake because it's also go well with Taiwan food. That's why the demand of the sake high, with a high rank is growing, increasing every year. So it kind of makes sense at the end of the day that they do well with most of the Taiwan food. One of the most frequent comments that we received during and following the summit was that it was really a great insight into the world of shochu. During this next session, which was titled The Craft of Sweet Potato Shochu, we got a really personal and detailed tour from Mr. Tekan Wakamatsu, who is the brewer and master distiller over at Yamato Zakura Shuzo. Together with him, we're also joined by some behind-the-scenes insight from shochu specialist and a regular extra hand over at the distillery, Mr. Stephen Lyman. The both of them together, their insight and perspective really provided a wonderful insight into not only the process of crafting incredible emo, aka sweet potato shochu, but also the day-to-day -day and the sort of the disposition that has fueled the quality and notoriety of what has become one of Japan's most closely watched shochu makers. We pick up right after a tour of the Yamato Zakura Brewery and Distillery, which was navigated by the shochu specialist and previous show guest, Ms. Maya Ailey, and guided by master brewer and distiller Tekkan Wakamatsu. You'll have to check out the YouTube video uh, for the tour in its entirety, but here, being interviewed by our in-house shochu pro, Mr. Christopher Pellegrini, Stephen Lyman is commenting on his takeaways from being intimately involved in the process, uh, from what he refers to as a rather sadistic pursuit of a craft, uh, the way that Tekkan-sang has his finger on the pulse of shochu in the industry, how the solitary nature of the process contributes to great shochu, and the beauty of human intervention. That was a phenomenal inside look at the distillery and just so, there's so much in in what Tekkan-san was talking about and and mad props to Maya Ailey who just asked all the right questions. So I don't know what what really stuck out for you, Stephen, like you you live this. Right. Yeah. To me, I, I really love how Tekkan's personality comes through. And also, you know, he's such a character. He's a really unique human. And, and I think that that really comes through. And he, you know, he really does embody that shokunin spirit, right? That craftsman spirit. You know, he was living the life in Tokyo as working in advertising when, you know, he got the call from his family to come back and start running the distillery because his father wasn't feeling well. And he, you know, he struggled with that decision. But once he made it, he threw his back into it. And he's just, you know, really become you know, such a, uh, you know, dedicated craftsman. And, and, you know, he, one of the things he told me the very first time I came to work with him was, because I, I was always asking him why, 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 each step, right? And he just said to me, look, you know, I call it the sadistic system. <laughs> and the reason is, is if, if I start cutting corners on small things, I'll start cutting corners on big things. 
you know, and the, the quality will suffer, you know, and now he's over the last eight seasons, he's added steps or deleted steps that have improved efficiency or improved quality, right? But it's still virtually all done by hand. There, are, I was thinking about it this morning, actually, there are two pieces of equipment that use electricity, other than like the vacuums and things like that, because we, sure. we are like on a vacuum, <laughs> you know, right? Carpets, but, um, you know, he, he has just two pieces of equipment that, that aid with electricity and everything else is just, you know, manual labor and steam, basically, you know, so it's a, it's a really, really interesting process. And, you know, he, his, his philosophy has also evolved as I, as I've known him and, you know, he's really um, matured. And I think he expressed that where, you know, when I met him, he really hadn't thought much about shochu outside of Japan. And now mm -hmm. he's definitely thinking about that. So that's a big shift in his thinking, but he's also had an, he's always had an outside view. I think that's why he was open to me coming and working for him. You know, I might've been the first foreigner to ever visit his distillery, but a year later I was here working, you know, and, you know, I, I think a lot of other distilleries probably would have just said, you know, no thanks. We just don't want the hassle where he welcomed it. Um, you know, and I think his time working in advertising in Tokyo really gave him a global vision. Right. I mean, when I was living in New York, he could he would recommend restaurants or bars to me before I even knew that they'd opened. Like he yeah. had his finger on the pulse, you know. So he really does. Um, anything, he thinks a lot about all of these things. He's he's got you know he's got nothing else to do, other than make his shochu and sell his shochu. So right. he spends all of his time thinking about it. Right. So every year I come back and he's got some new angle, some new concept, and it's always inspiring and it's always surprising. So I really, I think that came through a little bit on the video with him, uh, which I really, really appreciated. And, um, you know, the, the interesting thing he said to me, actually, the first day I was here this year, we always have these long conversations as we're working. Cause I think he, I think he's kind of lonely sometimes, like a lot of the work he does solitary. Right. And so when I'm here, it's sort of like a chance to, to chat, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so what he said to me, he said, you know, shochu is really, a, it's, a, it's a natural process. You're using yeast and koji, right? But that natural process is um, resisted by technology with a still, right? You're introducing something completely man-made to this traditional fermentation process with distillation. And that's what makes it such an interesting contrast, right? Because mm. we're talking about a handmade traditional product that's using technology right that that's that was developed for this purpose obviously thousands of years ago and the stills have evolved and you, you saw his still his still is pretty rudimentary you know it's all stainless uh it's not very big it's uh, not yeah i thought it was funny when maya said why is it so narrow and I was like, there's not a lot of room in the distillery <laughs> yeah, <it's true. laughs> yeah and you know it's it's i think it's older than his father his father just turned 80 this year so that's an old still you know it's been it's been around and um, so, but just his, the way that he thinks about these things and he, it's just like, it's, it's peeling an onion. Every time I'm here, I learn more, mm. you know, and there's always some new aspect and some, you know, new part of the process. I was like, ah, so that's why we've been doing that for the last eight years. <laughs> you know? The model under which Diamond Brewery has found new life is anything but typical. When Yasutaka Daimon, representing six generations of Diamond Brewery, partnered with the now CEO of Diamond Brewery, Mr. Marcus Consolini, 
they set a new precedent for what preserving and expanding the craft and culture of sake could look like. In this excerpt from the session titled Traditional Sake Brewing Under Non-Traditional Management, Marcus and Daimonson, they discuss what it was that they were really truly setting out to save when they decided to embark on this very special and inspiring journey together. Daimonson, I remember when we were taught, you and I were speaking probably several days only before Marcus traipsed in. <laughs> uh, and I remember you saying, well, you know, it's just a difficult situation. There's not much being done about it. But you said the one thing that disappointed you the most was that the beautiful Kura building would be bulldozered away. It would be destroyed. And this thing that has been such an integral, important part of the town there for almost 200 years would have to go away. And that really, really struck me as, as a very, very my tender emotional point. You, know, you weren't worried as much about anything except the beautiful brewery building going away. Can you tell me a bit more about how you felt that day or about that point in time? Well, yes, how I felt, yes. Many things happened in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain period of time. And actually, yes, exactly, John said, my most uh, wish or expectation is to, to survive uh, as is uh, the facility, the brewer, brewery, or the business or the brand or the, the market we had, if we can work with uh, someone and bring it to the future, that's kind of the uh, dream. And the, yes, some of you ever visited the Osaka area, we, Diamond Brewery is uh, sitting in the, the foot of the Ikoma mountain range, the east end of the Osaka prefecture. And it's very traditional small village, which is called Mukone village. And uh, more than the village itself is more than 900 years old. And the sake brewery is just nesting and sitting in the, perfectly in harmony with this environment and the nature. So I never uh, thought uh, this will be uh, disappeared in some way. So that's most concerned, of course. Uh, many things should be done, but I hoped uh, some, something will be happen. Uh, whatever the sake goddess will come down to save us or, you know, something like that. But it was serendipity, exactly what Marcus said. And the, the things went so naturally, amazingly, quickly. And it came to the point that we, uh, we could have started in a new form of the uh, business entity. So uh, it was great, just a great. So uh, thank Sakikadis. John, I have one thing to add. Um, 200 year old building with six generations of the Diamond family passing through it every single day of their lives. This has energy and it has its own personality. And that it, it, you can feel it. Uh, I grew up in New York City and, and you don't have that opportunity. Um, you know, my, my uncle painted, put, put pictures of the Italian, you know, our Italian roots, the houses where we came from when we emigrated. We don't even know if those pictures were real. 
<laughs> you know, it was part of trying to hold on to some kind of tradition and image. But this is real. And it's amazing to see it's, it's a part of the brewery and it's a member of the brewery and it's a contributor and it's a living entity. Every time there's a storm, this is my, my greatest moments when there's a storm going on. Osaka, just like the rest of Japan, gets hit with typhoons and earthquakes and all the rest. Every time there's a typhoon, I start running around like a chicken without a head, you know, checking this and checking that. Is the brewery okay? Is the brewery okay? And Diamond just looks at me and he goes, don't worry. Don't worry. 200 years, she's held up just fine. <laughs> she is a member of our team. So that, 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 uh, that has been a, a powerful, saving, saving her has been a powerful part of what we did. Returning back to the world of shochu, our in-house shochu pro, Christopher Pellegrini, paid a visit to the SG Club in the heart of Tokyo in order to kick off the Sake Future Summit for us. It's here that we were able to join founder of the SG Group and bartender extraordinaire, Mr. Shingo Gokang, as well as bartender and brand manager for the SG Shochu, Joshin Atone. Here, the two shared with us how they maximize the greatness of Shochu, both in theory and in practice. The visual component for this session was actually quite significant, so for those at the time, we highly recommend checking out the full program over on YouTube. In this clip, Shingo and Joshin talk about their approach to utilizing shochu in cocktail pairings, as well as offer practical advice for getting the most out of the profiles inherent to different shochu styles, even at home. Yeah, um, so right now, right now we do a cocktail pairing uh, course at the at SG Club, and we call SG Airways, because I, SG, uh, SG, SG Airways. Airways. Yeah, I used to travel a lot, um, so I wanted to introduce uh, a different culture of cocktail and food and Joshin Collective Music. And we basically take you to the Orchard World Tour. Um, yeah, the menu is a boarding pass and we give you each course in each different boarding pass to take you to a different country. Uh, so the cocktail pairing we do, um, so like I said, uh, shochu traditionally we drink with the uh, food. So mm -hmm. the shochu is best suited to um, to do a cocktail pairing. Uh, it's easy to uh, pair with the cocktail. Mm -hmm. That's the original, you know, how we drink shochu. So it's easier to mix with. Um, sure. What, what's, um, so on the, on the pass in terms of the food menu at SG Airways, what kind of food comes out with the shochu cocktails? So uh, like, you know, like I said, uh, each country has a different oh. food. So like you know, sometime in, you know, French, uh, you know, food and you know, Brazilian food and you know, it's, it, it's any type of food. You know, it's one thing. Um, a good friend of mine who's a chef says that with shochu there are no wrong food pairings. That's one thing he likes to say, and it's it's true. Shochu doesn't really have that acidity that's going to cause problems with different. It's not going to clash with food. Would you would you agree with that? It tends to kind of. Well, with a lot shochu has a koji and then sure. a lot of umami inside, uh -huh. so it's, of course it goes with the cocktail. Oh. But the difference between like wine pairing or sake pairing and cocktail pairing, if the wine pairing didn't work, you have to pick a different wine or different sake. But a cocktail pairing, if it doesn't work, you can adjust you know, until perfectly much. Okay, maybe this is too much acidity, okay, maybe less acidity, more sweetness, or more herbs, more spices, you can always adjust to be perfect pairing 
that's it. Yeah, that's so it. I think it's the yeah, uh, most common fault of pepperberry. I, I, I did not consider that. Um, I, when I think of like, when I think of rice shochu, I tend to think of, I think of skewers, I think of salads, like a nice chef salad. Um, and I think of tempura. Am I, am I kind of getting some good notes there? What, what would you say about that in terms of the uh, shochu, shochu in general, maybe a shochu cocktail and food? I think with, so there, there's a couple of different angles to it. Uh, because we are doing a, a completely cocktail and food pairing tasting menu at the bar, um, the, the, the dishes that we're serving are, you wouldn't be able to just say like, oh, that's just the tempura that I know. It's going to be, uh, if it's a tempura, it's not going to be a tempura that you've had before. Okay. Um, so it's, the food aspect is also um, kind of combining some unexpected elements together. And the cocktail is also combining unexpected elements together. And those two are being met to match. So I think um, it's hard to say in general terms just what ingredient goes perfect with which shochu because you have more of a complex harmony going on. Gotcha. Um, but because, like you, like Shingo said, because shochu in, in itself already lends itself so well to being enjoyed with food, um, when you have a, a shochu that works really well on cocktails, the the, the Pairing possibilities are really endless, and, and it's yeah, it's quite exciting both from the making cocktail perspective and the eating perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Justin, I think you can you can hear that uh, that was a rabbit hole. I think that's a whole other <laughs> session. <laughs> Interesting that I found was uh, kome goes with the cold dishes. Cold dishes. Uh, Mugi goes with the hot dishes, and emo goes with the sweet dishes. It's not just dessert, uh, you know, something that, you know, the savory, but sweet stuff, mm -hmm. or, you know, of course, dessert as well. That's kind of, you know, uh, what I found, uh, you know, while we're doing the SGA ways. That's, that, that was huge information right there for everybody listening at home. Kome with cold, Mugi with hot, Imo with sweet. That, that, that's gigantic. That's, that's, that would, for me, that's one of the, the most useful, like, the, the, the bulleted three points that you need to remember about pairing shochu food, that was fantastic. If we had to select just one component of sake and shochu that contributes to making these entirely unique beverages and cultures something really special in the global landscape, we would be inclined to put koji up on that pedestal. Taking more of a big picture approach for this session, we dedicated our time to looking at the role that Koji has and could likely have in further defining the world's relationship with sake, shochu, and how the world may learn to cook, brew, and distill in the future. For this session, redefining Koji for the future, we're, for this session titled Redefining Koji for the Future, we're joined by Mr. Koichi Higuchi, the director of Matsunosuke Shoten in Osaka, which is one of Japan's very few businesses dedicated entirely to the production, preservation, and distribution of koji. Together with him is Jeremy Umansky, who is the chef and owner of Larder Delicatessen and Bakery over in Cleveland, Ohio, as well as the co-author of Koji Alchemy. For the following segment, 
the two share the discoveries that came about through sharing their passion and resources, and how that's opened up a world of possibility that, particularly in Japan, no one had ever even imagined, which is just finally starting to offer a glimpse into what a world that has an appreciation for the power of Koji could look like in the not-so-distant future. Yeah, you know, I was very fortunate. I grew up... Um just in terms of being inspired as a cook, my grandmother was a caterer uh, for kosher foods here, here in Cleveland. So at a very young age, I was always very interested in cuisine and cooking and food, and especially how people enjoyed the food. At a young age, seeing, you know, being 13, 14 years old, seeing something that I made in my grandmother's kitchen for an event, and then putting it on a table and seeing a couple hundred people go and eat it and enjoy it was the biggest thrill in the world. So, you know, it, it all kind of started there. But going forward, I think, you know, and working with Koji specifically, it is such a wonderful and beautiful organism. It itself, how it grows, how it smells, how it tastes, and then all of the wonderful unlimited possibilities it gives us, not just in food, but I know at least here in the United States, since the 1980s, different types of laundry detergent and soaps, they've used Koji's enzymes in them to create these more environmentally friendly and biodegradable cleaners. Um, you know, space agencies now are looking at taking Koji to Mars and to the moon to help create you know, foods for astronauts, because you can go up with a little packet of spores and it doesn't weigh very much. And then you could grow it on something and end up with a lot more of something um, that doesn't really need the same type of, of circumstance or environment that say growing uh, wheat or, you know, a tomato plant or something on another planet would need. Yeah. So there's really, when I say unlimited possibilities like that's I'm so intrigued by that. You can do anything that you want when it comes to Koji. If you can dream it up and think that it's delicious and that you would enjoy it and that hopefully at least one other person enjoys it too, it's worth doing it. Um, and just that potential that Koji gives us is, is fantastic. I mean, me as an outsider looking into Japan and you know, even some of the other cultures in Asia that use Koji, the way I look at it is Asia and Southeast Asia, the most people in the whole world live there. There's more people that live there than the rest of the world. So more people are aware of maybe not Koji itself, but the foods made with it, the soy sauces, the alcohols, the sake, the miso, they know those foods than people that don't know those foods. So I feel in some regards that myself and other chefs in the West, we're, we're kind of, we're going really fast to, to catch up uh, because we're at least a few hundred years late, if not a few thousand at this point. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine, uh, Higuchi-san, I imagine, you know, when you first visited Larder, that, I mean, that was probably a bit of a shock. You probably also didn't imagine the idea of, you know, Koji going to the moon uh, at that <laughs> point either. But I'm curious, you know, as sort of the access to Koji starts to right now sort of expanding, um, starting to diversify. Um, you know, how do you interpret that, that potential? And sort of 
where are you feeling that there's different areas for possibility is, from your end as, as, as a supplier and as a producer? That is a good question, Justin. Uh, when I visited in Jeremy Sang's place and he served uh, many foods for me, um, mostly Japanese people has very conservative mind for koji because uh, we can access only uh, miso, soy sauce, and this kind of koji fermented food in Japan. And these has sort of similar flavor. How do you think about just Justin's about it? We have a co conservative mind, right? Yes, <laughs> I can say yes. It's, it's, I, was like, I don't know if conservative is the right word, but it's, it's locked into a very yeah. specific, it's yeah. very siloed off into very specific yeah. applications. Surprisingly, yeah. Jeremy Sun's cuisine has no these kind of flavors, but they, all of them are used with koji. Yeah. But we, I can say his foods are very fantastic because it has rich umami. And recently, we, uh, as I told you, we have uh, many, we receive many inquiries from international customers. And uh, most of them are uh, miso manufacturer or per talented chef or personal koji and sujas, and sometimes the sake breweries. And interestingly, I, I, whenever I received the inquiries from them. I ask um, the job title and the purpose of Koji using to avoid uh, spreading the, to our Koji starter to third party. Yeah. But at the same time, this works as marketing for us. And uh, we usually, I usually hear the job title, the Formenta. Yeah. It's a very interesting job title for me. Yeah. Because there is no words in Japan. In, if we I translate to Japanese, it's a, it is like hakoka. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. have never heard that job title in Japan. Yeah. And they are uh, making miso or amino paste with koji. And um, an interesting guy from Australia visited in our place uh, last year. And he brought uh, some his samples, and uh, he gave me, and I tasted that. Uh, they are uh, looking as miso, but the taste was very interesting because it has very cheesy flavor. Mm. But it's not contaminated for sure. But it yeah. has cheesy flavor. Japanese will never think about this. So. Uh, the big influence is in most of the big, big influences come from the overseas. So the Ameri U.S. and the European market is very interesting. It will, will be very interesting more in the future. Closing out the Sake Future Summit, we were joined by pioneering DJ and artist Richie Houghton, who also happens to be the mastermind behind the Enter Sake label and his recently opened sake bar and bottle shop in the heart of Berlin, Sake 36. Having launched Sake 36 in the midst of the pandemic that was 2020, here, Sake on Air hosts Rebecca Wilson Lai and John Gauntner check in with Richie on site at Sake 36 to learn about how his motivations and experiences with Enter 
have informed his latest endeavor. The experience of bringing an entirely new stage for sake to life in a world of uncertainty, and how it all feeds into a future vision for the greater sake culture. You have a new platform which is untested, and you are importing sake from Japan. Um, tell me a little bit about the relationship building because this is not just intersake, this is other sake outside of the intersake family of of um, labels. So, I mean, you're also providing breweries, as you've just shown us, with amazing market positioning, brand storytelling. Um, but I also understand that you're doing something quite innovative with your storage as well. Is that correct? Well, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if it's innovative. Uh, it's one of the other things that you know we learned with Entosake. You know, we have incredible partners around the world with Entosake distributors. Um, customers in, in stores and shops and, and restaurants, but every country um, has a different logistic pipeline, you know, um, so you, you, you really never know how long sake is taking to get to, um, to a certain country, how the condition is, how it's been looked after, and so one of the very key parts of sake 36 was to, you know, commit to handling everything from beginning to end so that our customers have as close of an experience to being at a brewery tasting, or let's say at least being in Tokyo at, at the best uh, sake bar in quality and consistency. So like I said to John, we have direct relationships to all our brewers. We pick up from the brewery and then we control it from that brewery until we pour it into the glass of the customer in Berlin. And that, you know, really um, doesn't happen very often outside, you know, of Japan because it's always other different middle people or distributors. And, you know, I'm not saying anything wrong about that because we need all that infrastructure. But for us, it was our commitment to, um, to kind of live up to the expectations of our breweries and to the quality of the sake that they were producing to do our very, very best with temperature controlled logistic flow so that our customers really are appreciating a, a, a senkin for how, you know, Usui-san has actually brewed that, that batch of sake. Yeah, that's, that's really crucial because I, I, all of us will agree that we are spoiled for um, choice here in Japan. We have you know, we are living in the, the best time, I, I believe, the best time to be drinking sake uh, with a new generation and older generations, everyone um, creating fantastic sake. And we're also getting a handle on some technical things like temperature control and making sure that from the brewery to the end consumer, we can provide um, a... Uh, an environment for that sake to transition to the final glass and stay in kind of a genuine quality assured condition. I mean, John, I want to throw it over to you because you are kind of the, you're a distribution guy and you might have some follow-up questions with Richie about um, what he's doing. Uh, well, I mean, I could ask a gazillion questions and I'm not so sure <laughs> all of them are public knowledge, but basically you, control temperature from the time it leaves to the brewery to the time it gets to your shop. Is that correct? 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I um, think. Go ahead. I, yeah. Well, you know, I think there's all there's there's many different um, opinions about what temperature um, and um, each part of the of, of the, um, the let's say the logistical journey that sake takes have will still have different people handling it from the brewery to the port from right. the port right. you know yeah. on the on on the uh, on the reefer container you know once it gets to uh, hamburg or where it's coming into europe you know so it's it you know it, i think it's very difficult to say we're going to dial this into whatever zero degree and keep that exactly from beginning to end so we have found um you know, a temperature that we can keep consistent because all of my talk talks to brewers, everyone has a little different viewpoint. Sure. Of, let's say from minus five to five degrees is kind of the range that most people are talking Mind, about. Eh? But what, wow. but what I heard from the brewers is that more than the temperature, well, you know, the second part is consistency. Any you know big swings, <laughs> exactly. So, right, right, so right, that's right, right. so it's it's finding that that balance of those two, and and also. Every sake is different. Not every sake needs to be kept at minus sure. five. Some some are great and can can be you know probably at fifteen or eighteen degrees. But what sure. our opinion what our opinion is is that no matter what style of sake, if we keep it uh, if we keep a cold supply chain, that when it gets to us, it's still in as close to the condition as it was in the brewery, and then. If we want to warm a sake up, if we want to, you know, again, I'm gonna, you know, gonna go back to, to Philip Harper and Tamagawa, who's like, open it up, leave it, see how it's gonna be in six months. Like, you know, it's if if that's the brewer intention, then we're happy to to pass that on to our customer and allow them to play with it, or we will play with it too, if that is 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 part of the philosophy of that sake. But at least the main point for us is that it gets to here to socket 36 and our storage downstairs as close as it was when it left the brewery. Japanese whiskey has exploded internationally. The truly unique Japan-born distillate of barley shochu, however, has not. As the world fights to get access to great, or in some cases, rather suspect, Japanese whiskey, right now there's still more than enough incredible barley shochu to go around. We thought it would be a worthwhile exercise to line these two incredible drinks up side by side and examine the roots, over time how they've come to influence one another, and then go over some of the things that might be worth keeping an eye on with regards to the current market and the years to come. Here in Barley Shochu versus Japanese Whiskey, we're joined by journalist and author Brian Ashcraft who is the author of Japanese Whiskey, The Ultimate Guide to the World's Most Desirable Spirit, where together with Christopher Pellegrini, the two discuss Japanese Whiskey's historic relationship to casks and cooperage, and how it's now influencing the world of shochu in unique and exciting ways. It's somewhat ironic because Japanese Whiskey really isn't that old. I mean, it still doesn't have a proper, a proper Japanese Whiskey still doesn't have a hundred years of uh, history in Japan, yet uh, more people outside of Japan will know Japanese whiskey than shochu, um, which I think is, is interesting. Uh, the, the Japanese uh, whiskey tradition owes, it, owes more to Scotland. It's, it's done more in the Scottish tradition 
So you're going to get a, you know, a double distillation and then you're going to, it's going to be aged obviously in, in wood. Uh, originally though, Americans brought whiskey to Japan. Mm-hmm. And, and as, as far as we know, uh, the first, uh, uh, and this is from, you know, a newspaper article from, you know, the 1850s, uh, the, the first uh, uh, whiskey that, that Japanese people actually imbibed was American whiskey. But uh, because of uh, Taketsuru-san, the, the, the gentleman who uh, was the uh, distiller manager at Yamazaki and then went off to found, uh, found Nika, uh, the, the, the country's really been on a Scotch, uh, Scotch whiskey tradition. And I, I think that what makes um, that so, uh, so interesting in relationship to shochu, especially the, the barley shochu, is and we, we kind of touched on this about how important uh, komasa is, um, that that uh, the importance of casks in, in whiskey, and not just Japanese whiskey, uh, not just Japanese whiskey, but whiskey full stop. So uh, flavor is going to be around, you know, 70 percent uh, uh, from the cask, from the cask, the maturation, about 70 percent of the flavor is going to come through that. And um, um, uh, we can't kind of stress, uh, we can't uh, de-emphasize the importance of casks. And uh, uh, within Japan, uh, a lot of the kind of medium-sized to smaller-sized Japanese whiskey makers uh, are able to get good domestic casks because of the shochu industry, hmm. because of the barley shochu. And so uh, uh, without that, without that industry of aging um, uh, a barley shochu in Western style casts, because Western style casts aren't indigenous to Japan. Japan has its own caste tradition and it's sure. different. Uh, but, uh, you know, during the Meiji period uh, and on, they started making uh, Western style casts in Japan. And uh, Komasa jo- Jozo's, uh, the reason why that, that company is so important uh, for this tradition was, uh, you know, during the mid to late fifties, uh, I think the exact year is maybe 57. Uh, they released a rice shochu. So it's not a, it's not a barley, not, not the one that we're, uh, style that we're talking about today. Uh, that was matured in Western style casts. And because of this, then we, we started to get a new uh, style of shochu. And then Mugi, sho- Mugi is, you know, uh, uh, just suited uh, much more to uh, this kind of maturation, uh, it seems, which is why a lot of other producers started doing that. Um, and because of that, you started to get a domestic cooperage industry that was really healthy and independent. That's the important thing. Uh, so the big companies like Suntory and Nika, even Kidden, uh, they have a, a wide reach. Uh, you know, these are big, you know, big, uh, uh, you know, especially in the case of Suntory, um, you know, big multinational companies. Sure. So they're able to get these kind of casks uh, and they have that infrastructure that, that they can, you know, uh, uh, smoothly make uh, whiskey. And so for smaller to medium size whiskey makers, the fact that we have a, a domestic independent cooperage industry uh, means that the barrier for entry into making Japanese whiskey is lower that they can, uh, they can, you know, talk to sales reps in Japan and get stuff, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot easier to their uh, maybe exact specifications. 
so the, the coopers that I'm really talking about here is a Ariake barrel. Sure. And they do, yeah. they do about 90%, 90% of what they make is for shochu, 90%. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the figures might be slightly, maybe 88 now, you know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> because there's yeah. a, a few more, let's say, whiskey makers, but we'll say ballpark of uh, 90%. Um, and what that means is that uh, there's just the supply of casks within the country that, that, that kind of really opens up options for, for Japanese whiskey uh, makers. So if you're somebody who really, really, really loves Japanese whiskey, you should be eternally grateful for the barley shochu industry because that's really yes. making uh, uh, a lot of this uh, not necessarily possible, but it's making a lot easier. That's you know, interesting. It's making a lot easier. So uh, I think that uh, we can't, uh, 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 you know, we can't overstate that enough. We can't say that, that shochu is really, really important to Japanese whiskey and not in the way that you think it would be which is why for somebody who enjoys, very much enjoys Japanese whiskey and enjoys shochu as well, to, to kind of see this, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, without, without each category getting the proper respect that it deserves, sometimes can see, seem frustrating to me, um, sure. if, if you know what I mean. But yeah, yeah, definitely. That's really interesting that I, you know, the, it helped to really kickstart the whole and, and create supply for, the whiskey industry. I think that's that's a little tidbit that a lot of people are not aware of. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing, like, and you can't, um, um, like, for example, when uh, Takatsuda-san went off to go set up uh, uh, the Yoichi distillery, one of the, like, first, like, big, big hires was a cooper, you know sure. what I mean? Uh, and a really, really famous cooper, uh, a guy named uh, uh, Komatsu, Komatsuzaki-san. And so he hired this guy, because he was an expert at splitting and working with Japanese oak. And um, since then, I mean, uh, Nika has, has shifted uh, to American white oak, because to be honest, like American white oak is a lot cheaper. It's a lot more plentiful. Uh, it's easier to work. It doesn't leak. I mean, the kind of the famous line that you hear, if you have 10 American white oak casts and one of them leak, that's a lot. But if you have like 10 Japanese oak casts, uh, 10 of them are gonna eventually a leak. Huh, leak. So I mean, um, so yeah, you can't kind of, uh, it, I mean, it's just, uh, casks are so important. The fact that there's a, that there's a, uh, just a, a world-class cooperage here, um, uh, making stuff independently is huge for the Japanese whiskey industry. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I just want to, I want to step back for a second because sure. we, we may be, um, causing people to believe that all barley shochu is cask aged. Right. Um, or that shochu in general is cascaged. And that's certainly not the point. I, I would say it's a it's a very small minority of right. the product produced in Japan. Um, and I guess I should I would be remiss if I did not mention that Japan actually has a barley shochu tradition that is protected internationally by the WTO. It's called mm -hmm. Iki Shochu. And mm -hmm. it's a rice koji starter fermentation barley. Uh, steamed pearled barley secondary fermentation uh, style mm -hmm. that is only made on Iki Island off the coast of Fukuoka. It's actually part of Nagasaki Prefecture. There are only seven distilleries there. It's a relatively small output, but it's an old tradition. Yeah. And that's, that's technically where barley shochu started from. And it wasn't cask, cask aged. Now, the biggest sellers in the 
barley industry right now are largely concentrated in Oita Prefecture, a bit over to the east in Kyushu, where mm -hmm. they make a often 100% barley, uh, often vacuum distilled, very light, um, sometimes has some floral or botanical qualities to it, nice toasted notes underneath, very mm -hmm. easy sipping barley shochu. So that's actually the standard. That's actually the norm. Right. But there's, there's a ton of variety. And what we're dealing with today, especially vis-a-vis -vis Komasa-san and mm -hmm. Komasa-jozo, is we're going to see some product that has been barrel-aged because they're really, really good at that. Uh, and you have to, uh, it's, it's, it's further, it's, it's important to further contextualize it. It's like, why did this start in the 1950s, this style? Mm. Sure. And it's like, well, Japanese, like whiskey within Japan was starting to take off, you know, uh, a proper whiskey has been made in Japan since the twenties. Uh, but even before that it had been imported into the country, but, uh, but it was mostly like expats or kind of like, I don't know, edgy adventurous drinkers, but normal, uh, normal folks weren't drinking, um, uh, whiskey really until let's say, you know, uh, 30s, post-war, kind of, it really started to kick off in the post-war era. So by the 1950s, uh, uh, the domestic whiskey consumption was, was influential enough where shochu produ producers kind of maybe a light bulb in their head went off and said like, oh, we could take these casts and it would be different. You know, it's not like they're making whiskey. They're not at all. It's something totally different, uh, sure. which I think is uh, fascinating. The other thing I just wanted to, to, to mention, uh, uh, just kind of wrapping this up, is it uh, one of the most interesting things that I've noticed that within the Japanese cooperage industry is that you'll have uh, coopers who are working at shochu makers, like their in-house cooperage, mm -hmm. and maybe they'll come over to whiskey or maybe they're in a whiskey cooperage, like, you know, really big company, uh, their in-house cooperage, and then go over to, to, to shochu. And so this kind of like cross, uh, uh, this kind of uh, crossover of knowledge I think just strengthens the domestic cooperage uh, industry. That's very interesting. That's a, that's a really interesting comment. And that will wrap it up for one more episode of Sake on Air. Please do feel free to share your thoughts and feelings about the show with us at questions at sakeonair.com, or you can follow us at, at sakeonair on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. The rest of all of these programs from Saki Future Summit 2020 are all available on our YouTube channel. If you go over there and search for Sake on Air, you will find every single program all archived into a convenient playlist uh, for your enjoyment. Sake on Air is made possible with the amazing support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center located in the heart of Tokyo. My name is Justin Potts, your host for this particular episode, and this show has been, and is always, a co-production between Export Japan and Potts Cave Productions. Audio production for the show is handled by Mr. Frank Walter. Thanks for tuning in with us this week, and we will be back in just a couple more weeks with plenty more sake on air. Until then, kanpai. Bye.